Solve, secure, protect. Look to Patel for the independent thinking and cross-disciplinary focus it takes to advance security and safety in a changing world. They provide their clients with integrated solutions that secure our nation and help solve challenges within infrastructure, environment, emerging threats, and deployable mission-ready technology. Their teams leverage their deep expertise to develop science and technology for a healthier, safer, and more sustainable world. Visit Battelle.org to learn how Battelle makes the impossible possible. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I sit down with Stephen Kazaza, President of Defense Trade Solutions, to discuss navigating the crazy labyrinth of the arms export control and ITAR regulatory regime. It's a complex issue, and if you want to be a successful defense company today, you need to learn how to navigate this bureaucracy to sell to customers in other countries. Whether you're a U.S. company selling abroad or a foreign company trying to do business with the U.S. Uh, I've known Stephen for several years. When we first met uh, about 2018, 2019, we were discussing doing a 101 tutorial workshop at the AOC uh, for defense companies to kind of help them learn what to do, best practices, what are some of the common mistakes that companies make, where do they need to invest their resources, and so forth. Unfortunately, COVID interrupted this effort, but now that we're on the other side, uh, we just had Stephen on the AOC webinar virtual series uh, last week to do a brief 101, and it went really well. So I wanted to have him on the show today to kind of give us that conversational look into how to go about understanding this issue. So I appreciate him being here. And without further delay, I welcome Stephen Casasa to From the Crow's Nest. Yes, thank you for having me, Ken. I really appreciate it. So this is, this is going to be one of the topics, you know, there are a number of different regulatory regimes out there in DOD that are extremely confusing and take up a lot of time, space, money in business operations. So I wanted to have you on the show to kind of help us break some of this down and talk and talk to us about how it applies to some of the big ticket items that we're hearing about, obviously the war in Ukraine and all the arms uh, transfers that are happening there. So just to begin, I, I think it's to help everyone get on the same page. Let's go at the 30,000 foot level and just talk some definitions because you just gave a webinar to the AOC last week and the title of the webinar is the... Arms Export Control Act and the ITAR regulations and how to navigate that. And there's a lot of terms here that we tend to kind of blend together in talking about arms control or uh, weapons transfers. So could you go about and share some of the definitions of what is the Arms Export Control Act? What is the international traffic and arms regulations? How do they differ? How are they the same to help us get on the same page here at the beginning? Absolutely, Ken. So in kind of the macro, the Arms Export Control Act is really the law that was passed by Congress that enables both the U.S. government executive branch and industry to engage in the export and transfer of defense articles, services, and associated technical information. So the Arms Export Control Act is really that umbrella law that enables the foreign military sale, 
government-to-government transfers of equipment from the United States to foreign governments, but then also enables industry to engage in private enterprise to sell and collaborate with respect to military technology with our allies and partners. And the implementing regulation of the Arms Export Control Act is the International Traffic and Arms Regulations. And so if you think of the Arms Export Control Act as the law, the ITAR is really more of the how-to, and it's administered by the Department of State. And what the ITAR is, is really the list of requirements from both a compliance perspective as well as an administrative perspective on how industry and the U.S. government are to implement the spirit of the Arms Export Control Act. Over the last uh, you know, decade or so, this has been a regulatory regime that's been under a lot of scrutiny and, and uh, efforts to streamline a little bit, maybe make it a little bit easier to navigate. You know, Sitting here in 2023, can you tell us a little bit about just how do you kind of get started in understanding where to begin to navigate this process? If you're in industry, you have a product that you want to sell overseas or you want to buy from an overseas supplier, how do you begin that whole process? That's a great question. And so if, if you're a company that's looking to get involved in exporting defense articles for the first time, the best resource is really the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls within Department of State. And so that's the office that really is charged with administering the ITAR and the really the steps that you have to engage in in collaborating with DDTC are the following. So first and foremost is there's a registration process that you as an exporter need to comply with in order to even begin to play in the defense trade space. And that process is, you know, takes about, you know, 60 days or so, and you're required to register as either a manufacturer or exporter of defense articles. And then from there, you're really on the hook to set up your ITAR compliance program, which is all the internal procedures and compliance requirements that you need in order to make sure you comply with the provisions of the ITAR from a restricted party screening perspective, from a jurisdiction classification perspective, from going and getting the right export approvals when you need them, even down to you know what your workforce looks like, whether or not you're, you're approved to hire foreign person employees. And you go and get that all set up. And as part of that, you then have the ability to go and submit export licenses and export agreements which are what feed into the U.S. government apparatus for the U.S. government to make a national security and foreign policy decision on whether or not what the different business ventures or different activities you're engaging in abroad align with U.S. national security and foreign policy goals and whether or not they should be approved, whether or not they should be approved with restrictions, or whether or not they should be denied. And then from there, once you get those approvals, then the real fun begins of operating within the bounds of those approvals and and figuring out how to do that while still execute the business that you're looking to execute. So if you're if you're a business and you're just trying to begin this process, what are some of the best practices that you continue to advance to your clients and customers uh, and just to the defense industry in general? Two or three steps that you think every company needs to take when they embark on this process. That's a great question. And there's really three core ones that we talk about with our customers at DTS. So the first is understanding that the U.S. government is your customer just as much as your foreign customer is. And the reason being is because 
the Arms Export Control Act and the ITAR were set up and the authority to export was set up as a way to benefit U.S. government foreign policy and national security objectives. And when you as a company want to sell your electronic warfare equipment to a foreign government, let's you know, make up a country, Bandaria, you want to you sell your electronic warfare equipment to Bandaria, Bandaria is your customer, sure, you're going to have a commercial contract with them. But the U.S. government ultimately has to decide whether or not the export of that electronic warfare equipment is in the interests of U.S. national security and foreign policy objectives. So going and engaging and collaborating with the government and figuring out how to integrate the U.S. government's requirements as part of your business plan and really view the U.S. government requirements on the same playing field as the contractual requirements that Bandaria has for you is the first best practice when it comes to structuring these deals. Because, you know, really the U.S. government is just as much as your customer as Bandaria is. The second would be not skimping on compliance. So when we were talking about the previous question in terms of the different steps, one of the steps I mentioned was going and building your ITAR compliance program. And so your ITAR compliance program needs to be something that permeates every level of your business activity from management commitment to employees you hire, to who are your vendors and supply chain, to the amount of screening you do, international travel monitoring, foreign visit monitoring, all these different things. And it is a lot of work to set up at the beginning, but it pays dividends. Because what ends up happening is if you have a strong compliance posture and a strong culture of compliance, that feeds into making operating under U.S. government approvals for for export a lot easier and allows you to execute faster and allows you to have speed to market faster than a company that skimps on compliance and then is trying to patchwork their way through navigating their first series of U.S. government approvals. The third recommendation to our customers, and this is very, very relevant for the electronic warfare community, is to make sure you focus technology development on designing for exportability. And when we talk about designing for exportability, it's really looking at taking the U.S. government requirements around which kind of technology can go to different countries or go to different end users and using those requirements as a way to really feed into your technology roadmap if you're going to be looking at the international market so that you're developing products that automatically align with U.S. government, national security, and foreign policy interests, automatically include exportability and export policy considerations in the tech, and will enable you to really go and export to as many foreign partners as you can without having to worry too much about U.S. government restrictions because they're already baked into the design. And so, you know, electronic warfare is very sensitive capability. So we encourage all of our customers to really work with the defense export community within state and DOD to really understand where the technical restrictions are on the export of EW technology and which technical restrictions might apply to individual countries so that you can go and take a capability that was designed for the U.S. government, modify it, and have it be export ready for the international marketplace. 
with where things stand now, I, I know when we were talking a few years ago, right before COVID, you know, we were going to talk about putting together some a one-on-one seminar on this. There was a strong effort to kind of modernize some of the regulations uh, that are out there and and how all the agencies work together. What is the status of the reform efforts today, a few years after here now that when it was a, a big ticket item? That's a great question. So back in 2013 was kind of the first wave of export control reform. And what that was, was really focused on taking the idea of controlling everything on, you know, let's choose electronic warfare system, everything from the smallest bolt all the way through to the most sensitive antenna to the same level. And what export control reform did was it really put higher regulatory walls around fewer items and really restricted the amount of commodities that the ITAR requirements really were levied on. It didn't decontrol everything because everything ended up going to the other side of the export control coin, which is the Department of Commerce Export Administration regulations. But it really decreased the amount of regulatory burden on parts, components, accessories, attachments, all of these smaller things, right, that the U.S. government really didn't have a policy issue with. And so that was in 2013. You fast forward 10 years, what you've seen recently is kind of two things. One, you, you've seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has really driven more than ever before a focus on security cooperation and arms transfers as a way for the U.S. to enable an ally or partner to really defend itself from an adversary and then also enable neighboring countries in Europe to be able to refurbish, modernize, and repair their current inventory so that they feel good about being able to defend themselves in case things go south with respect to the Russian invasion. And it's been a very significant success for security cooperation and arms transfers. Um, if it wasn't for the capabilities that Ukraine has received largely from the U.S., you know, we'd probably be in a different position. But one of the things that has come out of this, it's question about why does it take a wartime environment like this in order for the speed to be maximized with respect to arms transfers that we've never seen before, particularly when it comes to government to government transfers. And as a result of that, there are current reform efforts, both within State Department and Department of Defense on how to really increase the speed, consistency, and predictability around foreign military sales, which are those government-to-government transfers. So you're saying that because of the frequency and the degree to which we're sending weapons over to Ukraine, we're, we're, we're still learning the lessons of where we need to improve, but you do see a strong effort in kind of changing the way that we do things in, the, in peacetime because of some of the challenges that we are running into currently with Ukraine. Absolutely. And so actually back in 2016, one of the you know big talking points was about how broken FMS is because it's too slow, right? FMS is too slow. FMS is broken. We can't be competitive with countries like China, Israel, France, because our process moves too slow. And it didn't get anywhere. There was a lot of talk, but it didn't really change too much until now we're seeing both State Department and Department of Defense putting together proposals that are very detailed on 
what specific reforms they are going to do to improve the FMS process. That's happening. And then the third thing that's happening is AUKUS, which is you know, really the agreement between the US, UK, and Australia. A significant part of it is focused around submarine technology, but another part of it is around improving defense exports between the three countries. And what that's doing is, you know, say in 2013, the talking point was higher walls around fewer items. Now it's, well, should all countries really be treated equally? Or, you know, are there our allies that are going to be our allies through the end of time? And should we treat them as part of our defense industrial base with even more speed and agility, with even more wider approvals? There are some, you know, processes being proposed right now in Congress about really exceptions and exemptions completely and totally for Australia for significant amounts of military technology, which would mitigate a lot of, you know, ITAR licensing burden on companies doing business with those countries. And so it's a very exciting time. Hello, everyone. I want to thank Patel for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. Now, if you listen regularly to our show, you'll know about their exciting Ravenstar technology. So I wanted to spend a couple minutes sharing with you about the team behind the program and the talent they want to attract to Patel. Uh, to help me with this, I welcome Mark Rudink, Senior Director of Product Development. Thanks for joining me, Mark. It's great to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here, Ken. So I want to start with you. What about Patel's mission brought you to join the team? Well, Ken, I met with Patel when I was at Crown Castle, a wireless infrastructure company. And one of the leaders provided me with an overview of the diverse activities at Patel including armored vehicles, PFAS medication, carbon capture, and of course, advanced wireless systems. Layer the mission of building schools and STEM education, and I was sold. The weekly management updates that describe the impactful work that Patel continues to do across healthcare and other verticals reinforce that it made the right decision. So with your background and experience at Patel, what are some of the things you're looking for specifically in team members when it comes to working on programs like Ravenstar? Well, I've spent about 30 years in the wireless industry from startups to wireless carriers and Fortune 500 companies. And the high-level attributes that I look for in potential team members include curiosity, out-of-the-box thinking, and collaboration. The Delta is innovative work across multiple disciplines, and we need people to think about the ways to leverage that work for Ravenstar. For example, using metamaterials to develop our material science division as part of our next generation antenna. More specifically, Patel just joined the ORAN Alliance, which is an industry organization opening up the interfaces for different parts of the wireless network, which enables plug and play from different vendors for best in breed deployment of different solutions. So having people with knowledge in that area is extremely valuable. Additionally, we're looking for experience in scaling RF systems for high volume manufacturing and applying AI and ML to massive MIMO antenna systems. So what have you been up to recently then and what is coming up for the program? Well, on May 1st, I attended the 6G Open Government Innovation Day in Washington, DC, which outlined the need for innovative wireless solutions, especially those that are US designed and manufactured. And this was recently reinforced by the NTIA's May Notice of Funding Opportunity, or NOFO2, which is focused on commercializing radio units. During an earlier podcast, we described the successful field demonstration of Ravenstar, our broadband massive MIMO radio unit, in his last year. 
and a Mayart team installed Ravenstar in the desert southwest, connecting seismic array sensors to a 5G enterprise cellular-grade network, demonstrating the commercial application of Ravenstar. Additionally, we continue to evolve Ravenstar for DoD applications who are seeing significant traction in that area. We have a very busy fall coming up and are attending or presenting at several conferences, including the Arctic Circle and Pro Program in Reykjavik and the Telecom Infrastructure Project Summit in Dublin. And we hope to see you at one of those events. So if someone wants to join your team, then how can they get in touch with you to find out more information? Sure, Patel is actively hired and we're continuously looking to add talent to our team and work like like-minded individuals to progress programs like Ravenstar and the other work I've previously mentioned. You can explore job openings at jobs.patel.org and follow us on LinkedIn for job announcements and updates on industry news and topics. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining me here on From the Crows. It's always good to talk to your team. And now it's time to get back to our show. So as, as we are pivoting a little bit toward the Asia-Pacific region, you mentioned Australia. Obviously, there's other partners in that region, Japan, South Korea. Are we having the same conversation with some of those other partners on a bilateral front to how to expedite the ITAR process, specifically with an eye toward competition or conflict with China? That's a good question. And so we've had relationships, particularly with respect to arms exports with a variety of countries in the Asia-Pacific Asia region. But what's happening with Australia is on a completely different level than you know, some of those other countries. I mean, really, some of the proposals in, in Congress and some of the language being discussed is really trying to push the bounds of how wide of an approval can we put in place for working with Australia, not just on a government-to-government basis, but also industry-to-industry basis. So it's, it's really more collaborative there, what's happening with Australia. While other countries in Asia-Pacific, it's, it's really still focused on the transactional. So there are a lot of approvals that happen for countries in the region to varying degrees. But it's really more focused on like what equipment on this one-off can we go and evaluate for Japan, for South Korea, for Singapore, for Taiwan. On this one-off, two companies wanting to work together to collaborate, to do business with both you know, Japan and the United States. You know, can we allow those two companies to work together? So it's a lot more transactional than what we're seeing in Australia. Australia, it's really about taking down walls for sure and allowing for you know a lot of collaboration and a lot of free movement of military technology. So a lot of our conversation so far has been you know, with the assumption that it's a U.S. company trying to export uh, defense technology to another country. How does it work on the other way around? If uh, you know about thirty percent of our listeners here from the crow's nest, you know, are around the world, we uh, have downloads in about close to 100 different countries. So there's other people listening. How do they do business with the U.S. through these regulations? What are some of the, your thoughts about how they can best navigate the process so that they can have better relationships to export their goods into the U.S.? That's a really good question. And we, we've seen this with some of our customers where looking at electronic warfare equipment, so your customers are by and large in the United States, the ones that you're looking at is really U.S. Department of Defense, right? And, you know, wanting to do business with U.S. DOD. And so where we've, where we've seen this happen successfully is actually foreign companies going and setting up U.S.-based subsidiaries 
that will have all required security compliance, all required export compliance programs and the staff to really have a you know, local presence in the U.S. to do business with the U.S. DOD. And then what the company will do is go and get what's called a technical assistance agreement, which is a form of export approval that allows for collaboration between the U.S. subsidiary and the foreign company parent and will enable the import of capability into the U.S., the collaboration of data and services back and forth between the U.S. and a foreign company. And then it's the U.S. subsidiary that is ultimately selling to U.S. DOD. One of the challenges that we have in, we've long had in the EW community is that as technology develops and evolves, you know, we're moving toward multifunction systems. Uh, we're no longer looking at electronic warfare from a singular box perspective. It's it's a, a box that does a lot of different things. And oftentimes those some of those things when you're dealing with spectrum technology have commercial use as well as military use, or they are commercial products that can be quickly altered to provide a military solution. In looking at the dual use challenge, how does that affect your ability to navigate the ITAR process when you have a dual use or you have uh, just a technology that's so ubiquitous with how we live our lives, you know, when you're dealing with the electromagnetic spectrum, I mean, how does that affect the process that you have to follow? Well, I mean, it's, it's the start of the process, really. And so when we're talking about building an ITAR compliance program, one of the cornerstones of that is understanding your export and jurisdiction classification of the commodities you want to export. And really what that does is it's really doing a screening and analysis of your products and determining which ones are ITAR controlled and then which ones are EAR controlled in a dual use or commercial category. And there's a lot of technical rigor that goes into that analysis because it's one of those things where if you get it wrong, violation around it can really permeate throughout many, many sales into the future until they start to rear their ugly head. And violations of export requirements carry with it up to $1.2 million fine per individual instance. So it's it, this the repercussions of noncompliance are quite real and quite intense. And so particularly in the EW community, making sure you do your due diligence and analysis upfront in, in understanding the jurisdiction and classification of your products of what's ITAR and what's EAR, all the way down to the parts and components level is hugely, hugely important in order to maintain compliance with, with these requirements. Because really the classification is what determines which rule set you have to abide by when you're engaging in international business, right? And so really either hiring experts or having experts on staff to kind of walk through this is a good first step. And then if there's still any doubt you can always go and file a commodity jurisdiction with Department of State and have the U.S. government rule where they think the commodity should fall. But like you said, Ken, from an EW community perspective, you know, a lot of this technology is ubiquitous, whether it's military or, or dual use and commercial. And, you know, there, a lot of these things are software defined radios. So the box is the box. And then it depends on the software, or how you program it or how you tune it in terms of where it falls, either ITAR or EAR. So it's, it's very complicated and requires a lot of work up front. So you would say that if, if, you're, if you're a company, a, a young company just getting started, 
uh, you have some great technology. It's in their best interest to focus a lot of attention up front early on to building out your ITAR compliance operation in anticipation that you're going to run into this at some point if you're doing your job. Yes, absolutely. And you know, where it's really a risk mitigation strategy and a little bit of insurance. So the way this, you know, the penalties kind of work is, like I mentioned, it's up to a $1.2 million fine per individual violation of the ITAR. And and that's not per transaction. It's $1.2 million fine per violation of each individual ITAR requirement. So usually it's impossible to violate the ITAR once. It's, it's really like you do one transaction wrong. There's usually like, like five to 10 different requirements that you actually violated. And so the potential fines start to stack up really, really quickly. So, you know, we advise many companies, particularly that are just starting out, that international, it's, it's a great idea. And it's something that can be quite lucrative, uh, especially for those that do business with Department of Defense, because if you can engage in direct commercial sales with allies and partners, the margins are better. It could, you know, it's generally a very, very smart business decision for those that are committed and committed to investing what's needed to do it right. If you're not willing to put in the upfront investment in building an ITAR compliance program, don't bother engaging in international business. It, the fines aren't worth it. And you'll likely run into too many roadblocks when you're executing your international programs that, you know, it's, it's not worth the dollars and cents that you gain from those sales. But if you are committed, it can be a significant opportunity for your business to grow globally and a significant opportunity for your business to really increase revenue and, and develop new technology. I would think, you know, so our annual convention is coming up in December and the focus of that convention is going to be international partnerships, coalitions, It would seem to me, though, that if you are a defense company, if you are not investing time and resources into building out your ITAR compliance operation, building a technology that's only able to be sold to the U.S. is really limiting the positive impact your technology can have because so much of what the U.S. government is looking at right now, whether you're talking Ukraine and and NATO operations or competition with China, the U.S. is looking for technology that it can export right out of the gate. So it doesn't, it's not in your best business interest to ignore the ITAR compliance efforts. Would you agree with that? Or is it uh, a little bit more nuanced? So I, I would agree with that. And, and so, you know, look, on the global scale, right, a lot of your listeners, you know, they're patriots, which is why they got into the, you know, the aerospace defense business in the first place. And if you look at, you know, how the U.S. has been operating globally, particularly in the past two plus decades, we don't fight alone anymore. We fight with our allies and partners side by side, often using the same or similar equipment. And so revenue and business sense aside, in order to really be able to protect our men and women in uniform, we have to also be able to protect and provide critical capabilities to our allies and partners that we're fighting alongside. Because the more our allies and partners are able to use the advanced technologies in the United States, the better they're able to defend themselves and the better they're able to protect the U.S. men and women that they're fighting alongside. So imagine for a second that you are the 
the chief of all ITAR regulations in the U.S. In about five to 10 years, where do you see some changes taking place? Uh, what would you recommend the U.S. government pursue in terms of additional reforms for this process to, to, to improve international business? It's kind of three main areas. So the, the first would be if we look at foreign military sales for a second, which is that government to government transfer process. So the U.S. is often competing with other foreign governments of who can provide you know, capabilities to our allies and partners. And so where the, most of the improvements that I think need to be focused with foreign military sales and hope to happen within the next five to 10 years is, is really on being able to increase the speed of that process, not just in terms of approval, because the approval side of it is pretty fast, but in terms of contracting. So where FMS starts to fall, not really short, but starts to slow down is in the contracting process sometimes, because when we buy for an ally or partner to transfer via government to government, it's done with the mindset of, well, how do I make it a good deal for the American taxpayer and complying with all the FAR and DFAR requirements that you would get doing business with DOD? Well, sometimes our allies and partners don't really care about that, and they just want a you know, a good capability and a good capability fast. So I think there needs to be some work in terms of figuring out creative contracting mechanisms to allow FMS to happen at the speed of conflict, you know, uh, abroad. So that's, that's point one. Point two, with respect to direct commercial sales, this kind of a two-parter. The first is regular reviews of controlled technology. And so if you look at the spirit of what export control reform started in 2013, it was putting higher walls around fewer items. And that needs to continue, but it also needs to continue at a faster pace. So the EAR, for example, is regularly reviewed and adjusted for different emerging technologies and how, you know, what needs to be controlled, the reasons for control, et cetera. The ITAR, it's not really as regular of a review. Like maybe you'll get once a year a call for how should the ITAR change with respect to the thresholds on control of technology. A year, that's way too slow. This needs to be happening on a regular iterative basis so that we're constantly updating what is ITAR controlled and what is not. So that as technology evolves, the regulations are at pace with the movement of that technology. What was controlled last year might not necessarily need to be controlled this year. And so that's going to require a lot more manpower, resources, and technical expertise to get that done right within the government. But it, it's something that if we want to have a system that doesn't hinder the evolution of technology, we, we need to have that type of ongoing evaluation occur. And then third... The conversations with AUKUS, I think, is moving in the right direction of where rather than higher walls around fewer items, we need to think about, you know, what walls need to come down for our closest allies and have a lot more open collaboration with fewer ITAR requirements. So using an example, uh, there is currently an exemption in the ITAR to allow for free export with some restrictions um, between the U.S. and Canada. So there's certain administrative requirements that you have to comply with in order to qualify for this exemption. Something like that can be done for Australia and the UK too. There's you know, current exemptions or exceptions already in place that allow State Department to really say, okay, you know, in these instances, 
ITAR licensing and prior approval doesn't have to occur. The bounds of that, you know, might need to be explored for Australia and the UK because they're going to be our allies through thick and thin. And not just does there need to be more defense equipment going between the US and those countries, but there needs to be more of collaboration between their respective defense industries and our defense industries to really innovate and develop the next generation of military technology. And, you know, I say all that because it's, it's the, the solution is not in getting rid of all approval requirements because that's not it. You know, the, the Arms Export Control Act is built to be inefficient because it, the U.S. government needs it to approve things in a very deliberate way. But figuring out ways in which there can be prior approvals done or advanced approvals done for certain groups of technology, for certain efforts that the U.S. government's bought into so that when it comes time to execute different programs or different efforts between companies, it's happening as fast as possible without additional administrivia. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we're reaching the end of our time. So covering a lot of ground here, kind of as a last question, is there anything that we did not cover that you think our audience needs to know about navigating this regulatory regime? Uh, anything that you would like to add to your message that you've already provided? The only thing that I would add specifically for the EW community is that your export jurisdiction and classification of your products in terms of ITAR requirements versus EAR requirements is very imperative for you to understand when developing your ITAR compliance program. That's number one. Number two is really work with your Department of Defense customers and your Department of Defense stakeholders in the U.S. export community to understand what export policies apply to your system. EW is hard. It is hard to export. It is highly controlled from a U.S. government export policy perspective. So it's important for you to understand what are ITAR requirements that might be holding your business back versus what are export policy type of things that are in place from a national security and foreign policy perspective. Thank you for taking time out to join me here on From the Crow's Nest. And uh, if our, any of, of our audience is interested in learning more about this, you can obviously feel free to reach out to Steve Casasa. His company, again, is Defense Trade Solutions. Uh, website is defense-trade.com. Uh, you get his contact information there. But uh, he is a great resource, very helpful in helping us understand a very complex issue. So thank you for taking time and joining me here on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. I really appreciate it. It was an honor. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank Stephen Casasa for joining me here on the show. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. Uh, that's it for today. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Battelle, the world's largest independent, not-for-profit, applied science and technology organization. Since 1929, their mission has been to translate scientific discovery and technology advances to benefit society. Through markets such as health, environment, infrastructure, industry, and national security, 
Battelle has been delivering cutting-edge solutions that impact the well-being of the world and help keep us safe at home. To learn more, go to battelle.org connect. That's B-A-T-T-E-L-L-E dot org slash connect.